Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Patrick Jenkins, Deputy Editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. The US Federal Reserve has begun to consult the public, particularly in poorer parts of the country, about monetary policy. As a result, policy wonks at the central bank have begun to reconsider the impact of their decisions on communities far from the centres of power. Here with me to discuss this is our US economics editor, Brendan Greeley. But first, let's listen to an exchange from one of the recent public meetings organised between local community representatives and Fed governors. If inflation is too low, then rates are going to be even lower and we're going to have less power and over a business cycle will be even less ability to support maximum employment and stable prices. Nonetheless, it starts with the thought that we have to get inflation back up to 2%. We want it to be symmetrically around 2%. Do you think we'll have a hard time explaining that to the general public? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any great ideas on how to do that? I think you're going to need another three hours. For you said in the long term, it will have an impact, higher inflation, and I think we agree. But for many of our communities, the distance to the long term, we don't, we just don't survive that. That's, that's part of the problem. The business closes, people don't get to make the choice, say, for higher education. Um, families just can't buy the milk today. I think that's the challenge. So, Brendan, we just heard an exchange there between Denise Scott, who runs one of the non-profits involved in the consultation process, and Jay Powell, Is this typical of the kind of views put to the Fed chair during his consultations? It is. That conversation really stood out to me. I was in the room when it happened, and it got a big laugh. And basically what's going on is that the Federal Reserve has a problem, which is that it's running out of tools to actually accomplish monetary policy. Generally, there's what's called the natural rate of interest. It's impossible to measure. We have to sort of estimate what it is. But it's this idea of what interest rates would be without any intervention from the central bank. So the Fed and other central banks are watching this very carefully because their whole existence, all of their tools rely on the ability to undercut this rate, to drag it down. If that rate and inflation are very close to zero, they don't have any tools. So they're really worried about the possibility of low inflation. That's something that central bankers talk about all the time. That's what they're worried about. Now, normal people who just sort of live and work out in the real economy don't think this way at all. And so the Fed is starting to realize, in particular through having these public consultations, that the thing that it is obsessed with, which is a lack of inflation, is something that is completely alien to every normal person. And what people actually out in the real economy are looking at and thinking about and worrying about is the fact that, at least in the U.S., the cost of rent, the cost of health care, the cost of education are skyrocketing. That's the inflation they think about. But the idea that the Federal Reserve would want to create inflation doesn't make any sense to them at all. So there's this massive disconnect that the Fed has in that the thing it's trying to communicate doesn't make any sense to any normal person. But it clearly makes sense that they've come to this realisation that they need to conduct this outreach effort. But what particularly prompted it and how was it organised? Well, it's almost a bit of an accident that turned out really well, which is that the Fed about a year and a half ago, decided that it was going to really look into its tools. And those tools are both how it conducts monetary policy and then how it communicates, how it talks about monetary policy to markets and the public to make sure that monetary policy works. 
And so Jay Powell is an interesting chair. He's a different kind of communicator. And his press conferences, and he's gotten heat from this from people who are involved in financial markets, his press conferences are much more colloquial than press conferences have been in the past from Fed chairs. The challenging part of that is if you are colloquial and plain spoken in monetary policy, you leave open the possibility of misinterpretation by markets. The good part of that is if you are colloquial in a Fed presser, normal people might actually be able to understand you a little better. So he's already a different kind of Fed chair. As part of this review, he decided that he wanted to conduct what the Fed has called Fed Listens events, where he's going to go out into the community and talk to real people in real places about monetary policy. You know, journalists were all inherently cynical about everything. And I was cynical about this when they announced it. Um, It seems like a one-time PR effort. But when I went to these events and sort of watched him and watched the other governors, in particular, Jay Powell seemed to be really interested. He was writing notes and paying attention and actively engaging with people and talking to them. He actually seemed like he was enjoying it. And that's what caught my attention. Two things have happened. One is they've now had one at every of the 12 Federal Reserve banks around the country. These are cities all over, you know, St. Louis, Chicago, San Francisco. And Internally, what we can tell from the Fed minutes, and also some hints externally, it seems like they're going to continue to do this. So this thing that could have been a one-time feel-good public affairs event has turned into a way the Fed actually conducts research, and it's changing the way the macroeconomists inside the Fed actually conduct their research. What would you say the main lessons that Mr. Powell has learned from this exercise of listening to local officials, listening to local communities, especially in poor areas? So one thing that he has said that several other Fed presidents have said that researchers at the Fed have said is that they learn from these conversations that there's more slack in the economy than they had thought. And what that means is as the economy expands, it pushes the unemployment rate farther down. Slack is the remaining number of people who could get a job. What they've discovered is they thought that the long-term natural rate of unemployment was 5%, 4%. That's been dropping. When they go to these communities, one thing that came out of an event they had in Chicago, somebody said, look, in our communities, we're always in recession. There's never economic growth. And so they realized that there are a lot of workers on the sidelines who aren't employed who could be employed. There's a lot more slack in the labor market than they had thought. These are things that aren't captured in aggregate statistics of overall employment in the country that are caught when you talk anecdotally to people in certain communities. I think that's the number one takeaway. And the other one is that people don't care about inflation, or rather, people don't care about low inflation. They think low inflation is a good thing. And I think that's a real disconnect. And I think the Fed's still wrestling with that. Their response thus far has been, well, how do we teach them that low inflation is a bad thing? And I think there's another step coming, which is that maybe the Fed still needs to learn that it may have to live with low inflation because what people are really worried about is the cost of medical care, the cost of housing, and the cost of education. Let's take a step back here. You're talking about how the Fed is changing, but what is essentially the main task of the Fed or what has it been up to now? And how is that different from other central banks around the world? Well, what's interesting about the Fed is that they have a dual mandate. Most central banks in the developed world, their mandate is price stability. They just have to make sure that inflation is contained, right? And they've generally adopted a target of 2% inflation. The Fed has an interesting mandate. It also has a slightly different history than other central banks. It also has the mandate of full employment. And so the Fed has defined its inflation target as maintaining 2%. It hasn't really defined what full employment is. 
So it actually has this obligation under the law that charters it from Congress to pursue price stability and maximum employment. So it's starting to figure out that maybe it needs to focus just as much on maximum employment as it has in the past on price stability. Tell us about that gradual shift and how these dual goals have been pursued in recent years. Well, there's a separate thing going on at the Fed, which is that they're realizing that they have been unable to meet 2% inflation. Their target is 2%. They say it's symmetric, which means that over time, they should be sometimes above, sometimes below. What that's worked out to be in practice is that the Fed, like every other central bank in the developed world, has had trouble even meeting its target. And so there's a separate movement going on within the Fed as part of this policy review. It does look like they're going to come out of it with a shift towards what they call average inflation targeting which means that if they miss their inflation target for two years, they're going to promise to actually exceed their inflation target for the next two years so that over time it averages out to 2%. Because they've recognized that if you can't generate enough inflation as a central bank, then you're sort of missing out on economic growth that you could have had. The problem with that is the Federal Reserve has what they call a credibility problem, which is that it's not completely certain that they can generate even 2% inflation. So already, long-term, the Fed is worried about meeting the price stability part of its mandate. That's the bad news for the Fed. The good news is they're not worried about high inflation. And the luxury of being a Federal Reserve not worried about high inflation is being a Federal Reserve that can accomplish things that people and politicians like, like not raising rates and sort of trying to see how far you can get the unemployment rate down. And we've really seen a shift over the last year or so within the Fed. At the beginning of the year, there was noise that they were worried about the trade war. Now their rhetoric has shifted, and they're basically saying, look, we don't see any inflation. Let's see how low we can drive the unemployment rate. Let's come back to these regional consultations, Brendan, because as you suggested, there's a gap between certainly where the Fed started off in their thinking and views expressed on the ground about monetary policy. How have those views panned out in terms of difference between the views expressed in the consultations and those of the Fed Chief Jay Powell and his team? So one of the things that you've heard in his rhetoric is that the Fed's got this highly ritualized language that it uses to talk to markets. And so people who watch the Fed for signals watch the shift in that language for clues on what's coming up. And so he has actually started to take the events and refer to them as part of his ritualized language. You know, he'll say people in communities that we talk to tell us that they're coming back into the workforce at a rate they haven't seen before. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. And it's a line he repeats again and again and again in public speeches. That means that even if they haven't finished their year and a half long strategy review about how they carry about monetary policy, he's already telling markets, look, I'm going out to underserved areas. I'm going out to poorer areas. I'm hearing something different from them. And this is informing my monetary policy choices. I think the Fed has a bigger challenge, which is that historically, Americans have been hostile to the idea of a central bank. Because of this hostility, the Federal Reserve sort of doesn't even refer to itself as a central bank, though it obviously is. And it was constructed along regional lines. And so the original construction of it was that they took these 12 cities and built the entire Fed system around the existence of these 12 regional banks. So now, where a lot of the power, particularly since the 30s, is vested in the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C., the challenge is, what's the role of these regional banks? One way in which the regional banks have solved this is that they're really focused on regional development. What these Fed banks are doing, they're using what they call the convening power of the Fed, which is they've got great researchers, and they have 
some sort of moral authority. People tend to trust the Federal Reserve as an independent arbiter. And they bring together state and local governments and community representatives and local banks. And they say, look, here are the problems that we think we could solve. Here's our research that says this is what would solve the problem. Now, who's got some money to do this? Again, the Fed is in a weird position because they have all these regional research authorities that have recognized that you can solve unemployment problems in a very local way without national policy. They don't have any authority to change that. And so the very limited way in which the Fed can help is trying to keep the overall unemployment level as low as possible for as long as possible. And so marginally, the Fed can make a difference there. But What's changed is the conversations that were happening at the regional Fed banks at Boston, at Philadelphia, at San Francisco are now happening with the chair and the vice chair. That's brand new. It doesn't seem that novel, but for the Fed it is. So it seems like these consultations have exposed a preoccupation with the cost of living and a fear of incurring debt rather than perhaps on raising money to expand businesses as policymakers might have hoped. Does that mean that the Fed's traditional focus on cutting interest rates in order to stimulate lending in the economy needs to change? I think that there's a there's a sort of parallel problem going on, which is that the Fed is realizing that it's running out of tools to sort of affect monetary policy. So, you know, with its policy rate already now in an expansion at one and a half to one and three quarters percent, that's already perilously close to zero. They don't have a lot of room to cut. So they've looked at other tools. The Fed, for a bunch of reasons, does not want to go below zero. It does not want to repeat the experiment the ECB ran. It thinks it might be willing to do a quantitative easing, buying up lots of assets and expanding its own balance sheet in the next recession. So it seems fairly comfortable with that. It seems comfortable with forward guidance, telling people not only that it's lowering rates now, but it's going to leave them lower for longer. In the background, and that's something that the Fed will never say, but it's something that formal Fed Reserve chairs have actually come together to say, is that there's a concern that even those tools might not be enough in the next recession. And so to get back to your question, the Fed does not seem to be openly willing to contemplate anything radical like buying municipal debt, right? Actually targeting the kinds of assets it buys. It still is hoping that state and local governments and national governments will step in and do this kind of spending when the time comes. I am skeptical that that spending will come. But, you know, do I think the Fed should change its mission? That's a pretty big ask. What I'd really love to happen is for fiscal authorities in the United States to understand that community-based policy sort of fixing local transportation and education issues is massively important for economic growth, and it's going to require some spending. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that recognition. Well, thanks, Brendan, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on finance and climate change, Putin's Russian reforms, or the multilateral leanings of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, you can subscribe and listen on all of the usual podcast platforms. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.